This is a conversation with Joanna Lillis, author of Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan, and a journalist based in Kazakhstan with over 20 years of experience covering Central Asia. Our discussion today is primarily designed to help listeners move beyond the harmful tropes and stereotypes of Borat and to discover the diverse array of politics, perspectives, and cultures that make up Central Asia. We discuss how the genocide in Xinjiang has affected various Muslim groups in Central Asia, how the youth of these countries are pushing forward with radically different visions of the future than the often autocratic leaders of countries in Central Asia, how democracy varies from the totalitarian state of Turkmenistan to the at times vibrant though chaotic Kyrgyzstan and everything that lies in between this spectrum in Central Asia, and finally, why listeners should be paying attention to this region that historically has not received a great deal of coverage or reporting from Western journalism. It's a fascinating conversation on a region that deserves far more attention. For more conversations like this, you can listen to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms. And for print articles on in-depth and often underreported subjects, you can go to asiaarttours.com. We have a long-form interview series on Inner Mongolia that touches upon some of the issues, tensions, and stereotypes I discuss with Joanna on Central Asia today. Here's my conversation now with Joanna Lillis on Central Asia. Thank you for listening. So my name is uh, Joanna Lillis. I'm a journalist based in Kazakhstan. Um, I've been based in Almaty, Kazakhstan for, since 2005, previously worked in Uzbekistan and in Russia. And I'm the author of Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. So um, I like to start with the journalist or with the interview guest because for the rest of the time, you're going to have to f- hide behind sort of the mountains of knowledge that you've uh, accumulated over your many years covering Central Asia. But to start off, what drew you to Central Asia? And you've reported on the region for quite some time. What's kept your interest going all these years later? Well, um, I, I, in fact, Central Asia first kind of uh, hit my radar um, way back in um, 1988 when I was a student and I was studying in the former Soviet Union. Um, and I've never, uh, although I was a student of Russian language at the time when the USSR still existed, I'd, I'd never thought too much about some of the more far-flung parts of it. And I was studying in um, what's now Belarus in the city of Minsk, and um, the, there was a football team came to play. I went to watch the match, and the football team was from a city called Alma-Ata, which is nowadays Almaty, the city that I'm based in. And I was just kind of intrigued. Where is Alma-Ata? What is Alma-Ata? 
And um, I learned that it was, you know, Kazakhstan, that it was part of Central Asia. And um, obviously, I didn't think too much more about it for, for some years, really. But um, after I'd graduated, I went to work in Moscow and did various jobs, ending up working for uh, BBC Monitoring, a department of the BBC that um, that um, sort of tracks the, the media coverage and translates or provides news reports from media coverage rather than from the street. And, um, and, and then in 2001, I moved uh, with BBC Monetary to Uzbekistan and, um, and I worked with there for four years with BBC Monitoring. Um, and after, after my contract finished there, I didn't want to go back to the UK and um, I decided to come next door to Kazakhstan to, to freelance at the time. Uzbekistan, very close dictatorship, it wasn't possible to freelance there. So I moved over to um, Kazakhstan. And um, so I've been in Central Asia for 20 years this year. And what, what's kept my interest? Well, Central Asia is a fascinating region. Um, and it's also an underreported region. So as a journalist, um, you know, I found it very interesting to try and tell some of the stories that aren't being told. And also, I guess, to try to combat some of the cliches we, we see about, um, about, about Central Asia. Often the reporting can be very superficial um, when it comes to Central Asia. So I wanted to do something a bit different and to tell some of the stories uh, that, that weren't being told. And that's a good segue into our next question. Uh, I'm no fan of Borat. In, in fact, I think it'll, um, when there's more reflection, I think it'll really be a black stain on the legacy of Sasha Barack Cohen. I find the character quite offensive, to say the least. Um, but Borat aside, or if you think it's important for answering this question, um, what are some of the tropes or stereotypes uh, or Orientalism that you see in media reporting uh, on Central Asia? And have you seen part of your role as a journalist to try to push back or puncture some of these misconceptions? Well, there are definitely a lot of tropes about Central Asia when it comes to Western media reporting. Um, just before talking about some of them, uh, I think I, I think it's useful to say that one, the, to talk about a little bit about the reasons for them as well. And I think one of the problems for Central Asia is it's kind of stuck in this in this um, in the middle of Eurasia, um, but it's overshadowed by the, by its neighbours. And um, you know, Russia gets a lot of attention in the Western media. Um, some of the reporting very very good quality and in depth. Some of it not so much. Of course, there are plenty of tropes about Russia too. Um, but it tends to overshadow Central Asia uh, when it comes to, to, to people reporting, um, about, to, to journalists reporting about what's happening in the former Soviet Union. It tends to occupy a lot of space. And I think editors um, as well don't find space sometimes for Central Asia when Russia's taking up the story. It's a, it's a big neighbor that overshadows. And of course, China too, to some degree. Um, as a big neighbour that um, that uh, is uh, very dominant in Western media reporting about this wider region. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to the tropes, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that the Borat is the most enduring trope, certainly about Kazakhstan. Um, you know, uh, that, that, that film by Sasha Baron Cohen got a lot of traction and you are, you know, even 
Okay, he put it. He put a second uh, a, a sequel out recently, but even before that, you know, it, it had been more than ten years since that film came out, and you you really see so many reports on Kazakhstan that just have the crowbar Borat in for for no reason whatsoever. Um, so that's an enduring trope. I mean, I wouldn't. I'm not sure if many people believe that's the real Kazakhstan, but it but it is a trope that people reach for, and um, that journalists often try to make the comparison. Oh, this is just like Borat, or oh, this is just this is not like Borat. So. Um, it's a shame, really, because um, although it, it brought Kazakhstan some publicity, um, I guess um, it, it, it's just a, a kind of lazy trope that has endured in much of the Western media reporting. Um, what other tropes do we see? Well, we do see a lot of kind of Orientalism um, reaching for a kind of... Um, uh, in Western media reporting, we feel we, uh, I feel that a lot of the reporting is done with an eye um a, an outsider's eye well i'm an outsider myself even though i've lived in, in central asia for 20 years but um i feel that you feel in some of the media reporting you feel this eye of an outsider who finds everything exotic um and um sort of focuses on that exoticism um at the expense of uh, perhaps self-reality or at the expense of trying to see how people think about things or how they live and i find that very pronounced let's say for example, for example, um, I find that very pronounced, for example, in Uzbekistan, um, where people are often dazzled by by the um, by the well, I suppose, by the sheer um, um, dramatic nature of some of the architecture in Samarkand and Bukhara and so on. Um, by the by, the colorful uh, way that people dress and uh, by by various, you know, and by the and by the um, many of the traditions that endure in Uzbek um, traditional life, even though it's very modern um, society in many ways. But I feel that um, you know that 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 helps draw a draw attention to a country. Um, people love to journalists, sorry, love to go and report on Uzbekistan. But it does make for a lot of um, tropes in the reporting about how you know people are very authentic. Um, and so on, and life is very authentic, and the food is very authentic, um, and that's a word that that um, really grates with me. For example, authentic, because whatever people are doing is authentic, whether whether it's traditional or not. Um, so those are some of the tropes um, I can see, and also I think it's definitely worth mentioning here um, Turkmenistan. I mean, it, it's um, unfortunately journalists have very little else to reach for um, other than tropes when it comes to reporting on um, Turkmenistan because the country is so close, so close off to journalists, um, so completely um, secretive in, in many ways um, and, and, and so um, yeah, difficult for journalists, uh, Western journalists really to get into, foreign journalists to get into and report from, that journalists tend to have very little to hang on to when they try to report on on Turkmenistan. And therefore, um, I think it's, in fact, this is probably one of the biggest problems I see in Central Asian reporting is that, um, that Turkmenistan becomes a kind of a joke and eccentric, uh, because it is extremely eccentric dict dictatorship, uh, but that becomes the focus of all reporting and it's turned into a joke, but it's not a joke for the people who live there suffering from human rights abuses and so on. Um, so, those are some of the tropes I can see in Central Asia, um, in reporting on Central Asia. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not a fan of, of, I think Vice has really grown out of it, but early on, you know, a lot of Vice reporting is let's go into these black hole countries like Turkmenistan or North Korea and 
so on. I've never been a fan of that style of journalism. We're in a moment now, it seems, of, of global uh, democracy movements, global protests. And very quickly, I wanted to look at uh, these Central Asia countries, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. And just um, from your sense of if we had to put them on sort of a continuum of democracy, because they're all very different, what do you see as the state and spectrum of democracy in the Stan countries today? Well, it's a good question to ask about the state of democracy in the Central Asian countries, as, as all of them mark their 30th year of independence this year, 30 years since the Soviet Union collapsed, and so all of them got independence in 1991. Um, and they all made a stated commitment to democracy. But um, unfortunately, I mean, as a whole, we can say that the Central, none of the Central Asian countries have, have achieved democracy in that time. Um, some of them have, have never tried at all. Um, some of them tried briefly. Um, and gave up um, because um, it appeared to be not in the interests of their leaders, um, I think. Um, and uh, many of them, um, most of them really, have, have not made um, much um, attempt at um, transitioning to democracy since the 1990s, the early 1990s, really. If we're going to talk about a spectrum, um, we have one very, very clear um, outlier, really, in terms of... Um, um, the, the worst country in terms of democratic rankings, and it, and it does feature right at the bottom of all global rankings on, on democracy and also freedom of speech and so on. That's Turkmenistan. Um, as I, I mentioned before, it's a very closed country, a very secretive um, dictatorship. And, um, you know, it, it, it really is a, a serial human rights abuser and uh, a, a, a country with, um, with almost, uh, you know, with democratic institutions, really. Um, and we also have one country that, that stands out as having more freedoms than <clears throat> the other countries, and that's Kyrgyzstan. Um, Kyrgyzstan has, has always, um, since the 1990s, has always had, um, provided more freedoms to its citizens um, and has had a slightly freer political system. Um, however, um, it, it's also suffered from, uh, well, it's also experienced, Kyrgyzstan has also experienced um, um, through the overthrow of three presidents in the course of 15 years in uprisings. I hesitate at times to call them popular uprisings or revolutions because there have been many factors involved, but it's a, it's a country that's experienced a great instability um, since independence or particularly since 2005. And now um, it, it's only just fresh out of its latest uprising um, change of precedent. And the country is now taking, uh, it appears to be taking a more autocratic path. Um, so, and even though it's uh, probably the freest in the, in the region, it, it doesn't make it free or democratic. There are, there are many human rights abuses and abuses of freedom of speech, democratic processes, and, and so on. Um, and then the, we have the other countries that are, that are somewhere in the middle. I mean, um, um, we can say um, that Tajikistan's story of, um, well, Tajikistan's case, um, is, is alarming. We've seen um, a rollback of, of, of whatever um, political, well, we've seen a rollback, um, let's say, uh, towards more autocracy in recent years, the banning of the country's main opposition party on the pretext that it's an Islamic, Islamic extremist party, which it is not, um, and um, other, other, other similar uh, uh, um, 
action. So I think we could say that that's, um, that's way down there on the scale. Um, but Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan also suffering from, um, also um, don't have a good record on, on democracy. Now, we should single out here uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, we've seen Uzbekistan become something of a good news story over the last five years um, since the long ruling dictator Islam Karimov died in office and was succeeded by his prime minister, Shavkat Mezioyev, um, who, who, who proved uh, very unexpectedly to many to be a reformer and something of a liberalizer. Now that has um, attracted a lot of media attention over the last five years. And not surprisingly, and, and, and not, not surprisingly because it's an interesting story, a good story, and also a good news story in a world where we don't have too many of them. Um, but I think we, we also, we've got to risk that, um, um, that um, reforms notwithstanding, and we have seen many reforms, there, there's much greater freedom of speech, civil society is a little freer to operate, um, people are less afraid to speak out, um, foreign journalists, including myself, have been allowed back in, um, and, um, and all kinds of, of, of really, really excellent developments, the freeing, freeing of uh, many political prisoners, um, and so on. However, um, you know, we do see that the, the good the, that uh, the focus on the good news aspects of Uzbekistan's uh, reform process has obscured many problems that, that are not given due attention in the foreign media. Um, for example, the limitations on reform. This year, President Mezuev will be up for re-election. Well, he hasn't said if he's standing, but um, it's very likely that he will. But the country has, still has no political opposition whatsoever. So I think we, you know, we, we, we need to focus more on, on the, the limitations of the reform process now that the five-year litmus test, let's say, at the end of his first term is up. And um, so that's where we see um, the, the, the state of democracy in Central Asia. Um, in Kazakhstan, uh, just briefly, um, Kazakhstan also, its long ruling leader left office um, in 2019. He resigned in office, but still continues to occupy an official role for the political spring, strings. Um, still continues to pull the political strings uh, while, while after his resignation as president. And there were some hopes for some democratic reform after his resignation, that something would change and people went out to protest to demand that. Uh, but, you know, we've really seen, again, limitations on this. We've seen a little bit of um, changes to laws, a little bit of um, allowing people to protest a little bit. But we see a lot of arrests of dissidents, um, a lot of restrictions on the right to protest. And we also see again, an absence of functioning opposition in the country. So the state of democracy in Central Asia is not great, um, although there are some glimmers of hope uh, in some places here and there. So in going through uh, the research I, I tried to do for this conversation, um, there's a lot of, there's increasingly good resources for Central Asia. Your Asianet, uh, Calvair Journal, uh, your wonderful book, Dark Shadows. Um, there were a few questions that I didn't see discussed in many places I looked at for my research, and I, I wanted to turn to you as more of an expert. Um, recently on our website, uh, Asia Art Tours, we did a very long-form interview on Inner Mongolia. And Inner Mongolia is a nomadic, uh, or was uh, historically a nomadic society, and uh, it really present really challenging frameworks about land and how some Central Asian societies have historically seen land um, in ways that I found really complex and interesting. For Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, which from my understanding historically have been more nomadic societies, could you explain anything that is 
unique or um, central uh, to how these societies have historically interacted with land uh, or seen it differently than their other Central Asian neighbors? And could you discuss a little bit about why that difference exists between, let's say, uh, a more um, centralized state uh, like in Uzbekistan versus uh, Kazakhstan that historically may have been much more nomadic as a society? Um, that's a good question. Yes, um, indeed, you you did um, some um, very interesting reporting on um, about Inner Mongolia in this context, and um, it's it's really very interesting the the sort of divide in 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 mentality on many issues between the formerly nomadic societies of Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, I think, and the um, and also Turkmenistan was formerly nomadic, um, and also and the more sedentary the sedentary populations of, of um, historically of um, Uzbeks and Tajik. Um, at least uh, uh, not always, of course, Uzbeks came out of the nomadic populations, uh, but much further back in history. Um, and um, I, I think it's really very striking um, in Central Asia that Kazakhs and Kyrgyz do seem to have a particular um, attachment and a particular way of um, looking at um, land as at, at land at the territory that's underneath their feet sort of thing um, uh, metaphorically speaking at least um, um, compared to say Uzbeks and Tajiks and that's not to say of course that um, other Central Asian people don't feel a great attachment to their land they do um, but I think um, we can look at one very striking example um, showing the Kazakh attachment to land. Um, in, in, in 2016, so that's five years ago now, um, Kazakhstan was a country where the right to protest was and remains um, extremely, um, extremely restricted and that anybody who, who went out to protest was, was, was threatened with arrest um, and even a single person. But in 2016, um, large numbers of people for Kazakhstan, by Kazakhstan standards, took to the streets to protest over um, land reforms that the government was enacting. Um, and this was something that really, really fired people up and provoked the biggest uh, protest that the country had seen for 25 years um, since, in fact, since, since it was part of the Soviet Union. And it was land that really um, fired up the Kazakhs and sparked those protests. Um, now, the government was very much taken aback by this, partly because it has this big disconnect with its population, doesn't really understand the people, it's too disconnected. Uh, but also because it didn't see what was wrong with those reforms. Um, the reforms, it said, were to attract investment to agriculture and much needed to kind of modernize and so on and to create jobs. Um, and um, in order to do that, they had um, they were going to allow uh, longer leases on land um, uh, because land ownership was already extremely restricted and most land is leased for long periods. Um, and they were going to allow a, a sort of slightly backdoor route to foreigners to own land in partnership with Kazakh um, business business partners. Um, but that was it was only a very restricted kind of um, option. Um, but people people were absolutely enraged by the idea that the government thought that it could take the land that it they see as sacrosanct public property and um, either sell it or lease it out or give it to foreigners especially foreigners that also riled them up people especially believed that um, it, it was particularly chinese investors who would come and grab the land this being a giant neighbor which we know leases um, and buys agricultural land around the world um, and people really were um 
I think this, these, these large uh, protests um, really showed um, what the, this attachment to land that, that um, Kazakhs and also Kyrgyz uh, feel. And um, the government was even a government that's very unresponsive to public demand in Kazakhstan was actually forced to backtrack and put a moratorium on those reforms um, for five years. Um, now, um, I think we can also point further back a little bit in history. Um, Kazakhs and Kyrgyz um, also, when Russian settlers came, um, you know, the, the land was also the, the grabbing of land from nomads by um, Russian colonizers was, has also been a big issue. And uh, in 1916, there was an uprising in Central Asia um, by um, um, in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, particularly, and other parts of Central Asia. And um, this was against uh, conscript, conscription of Muslims from Central Asia for the First World War by the Russian Empire um, to do um, to, 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 to do uh, you know digging trenches and so on rather than fighting, but um, but the, but land was an issue in that because people the, the they people sort of um, the, some of the uh, those who engaged in the uprising sort of rampaged over the, some of the land that had been settled and grabbed from the nomads. So I think there's a very historic attachment among nomads um, to land, which sometimes comes as a surprise to. Um, people who think that nomads just roam around and don't have any attachment to land. I think it's also very much misunderstood, um, and people would know this probably from looking at your coverage of Inner, Inner Mongolia. Um, pe many people think that nomads sort of just go to different places all the time, whereas in fact they have very, um, they had in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan very fixed um, grazing and areas and so on that, that, that were considered to belong to certain tribes, even though they didn't officially belong on paper. And, and the fact that some of these were lost during the colonial period and um, is, uh, you know, because it, because they didn't belong to anyone on paper is something that's lodged, lodged in the psyche, um, I'd say, of nomadic peoples in Central Asia. And so is the fact that, um, you know, the, that, um, that the, the collectivization of agriculture in Soviet times in the 1930s under Stalin created a massive famine, so sort of driving people off their land, whether they were practicing their nomadic lifestyle into collective farms created a massive famine. And this is also related to the use of land and how land was allocated and used. Um, and that was a devastating experience for Kazakhstan. The famine in Ukraine, very, very well known, quite well known in the world anyway. And in Kazakhstan, that Kazakhstan experienced a similar famine at the same time is not so well known. But it's a traumatic thing lodged in the Kazakh psyche and also related to, again, land. And that's a, a great segue into our next question. Um... Russia, the USSR, and their long, the long shadow that they've cast over Central Asia still has huge ramifications in the country today. You do see um, excellent journalism such as yours, uh, books like uh, The Hungry Step by Sarah Cameron, um, and others talk about, you know, similar to the Holdomar um, famine in Ukraine, there was... Uh, also horrific events of mass starvation uh, in Kazakhstan due to Soviet agricultural policies. At the same time, with the sort of kleptocratic practices of many Central Asian leaders and parties, you, you see this very strange ambivalent nostalgia in some of the reporting on Central Asia, longing for a Soviet system where, hey, at least everyone could work. Um, Tajikistan, I believe, uh, and Kyrgyzstan, many workers have to go to Russia and remittance from uh, Tajiks and 
Kyrgyzstan, uh, Kyrgyzstanis going over to Russia is a huge part of those countries' uh, economies. So um, anything I got wrong in there, feel free to correct in your answer too, because I don't. I'd, I'd rather have the facts than myself sounding smart, because you're the expert. But in terms of Soviet Union, Russia, how do we see sort of these ghosts? create sort of an ambivalent nostalgia? Where is there still a very genuine anger at Soviet and Russian policies? And perhaps particularly for the economy, um, where do people have somewhat of a, have mixed emotions about that period of Central Asian history? Uh, I think mixed emotions is a good way to describe um, how people look at the Soviet Union nowadays. And ghosts of the past is also a very nice um, sort of um, metaphor to reach for because um, um, because the, the Soviet Union um, and the history of it, um, as well as, of course, the, 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 the history of the Russian um, Tsarist colonial period, they cast a very long shadow over um, Central Asia. Um, now, um, you know, we see some of the devastating impacts um, that we've already talked about, the famine in Kazakhstan um, in the 1930s that, that left at least a million Kazakhs dead um, and perhaps more. Um, and we also see um, environmental devastation that's affected all the countries. And we can point to the most glaring example of a man-made environmental disaster is the Aral Sea shared between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan um, that dried up from not uh, that, that, that not not completely but that shrank enormously from the 1960s owing to the diversion of water to to, to irrigate the cotton fields and and created all kinds of health problems environmental problems for the people living around it because obviously the dry seabed was blowing um, and is blowing dust around, um, dust, sand, and, and um, polluting chemicals into people that people are, are breathing. Um, we've seen some um, um, rejuvenation of the Kazakh side there, some save, some damming to save a little bit of the sea on the north side, but um, the, it looks like the south side is, is completely doomed. Um, and um, you know, we 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 see um, we've seen also uh, the effect on demographics, the long shadow again of this colonial period. Um, demographics. I mean, we, again, we can look to Kazakhstan for the most glaring example, but this affects all of Central Asia. But in Kazakhstan, in the thirties um, and forties, you know, whole peoples were uprooted from other parts of the Soviet Union and deported to Central Asia en masse um, to punish them for some perceived disloyalty um, under the paranoid um, Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen different groups, Crimean Tatars, um, Koreans, um, um, Ossetian Turks from the Caucasus, um, all kinds of different people. Germans were deported from the Volga, uh, on, in Russia, and, and different kinds of people were all uprooted and brought um, to Kazakhstan and other countries in Central Asia, which um, profoundly altered its demographics. Um, at independence, Kazakhstan was the only uh, Soviet Republic that emerged into independence with its titular people, the Kazakhs, in a minority in their own country. And this has had a profound impact on the psyche. 
Um, we also, of course, saw the gulag. Um, everyone knows about the gulag stretching over Siberia, but a uh, few people would know that Kazakhstan was a massive part of that gulag system. It, the gulag stretched down into Kazakhstan and the heart um, of the gulag in Kazakhstan was a city called Karaganda, um, which obviously still has this um, traumatic kind of um, history. It was uh, less than 100 years ago that um, the, the camps were open there. Um, so uh, we, we do see these kind of ghosts of the past all the time. Um, um, I think it's also worth mentioning that people also see, as well as seeing these, these ghosts of the past that constantly emerge, also in mentality, in the political systems as well, let's face it, because um, the, so the, these countries inherited a non-democratic system and tried, um, at least to some degree at the beginning, to forge democracies out of, out of that and have not been able to do so and have given up doing so pretty much. Um, so we see all that legacy, but I mean, people also point to positive legacies, um, for example, high levels of literacy, um, certain benefits in education, um, certainly, although I think, you know, in many ways, these are sometimes over exaggerated. Um, there are lots of problems with uh, these post-Soviet education systems not delivering critical thinkers, for example, but they do certainly deliver strong scientists, mathematicians and so on. Um, and, um, you know, I think I think um, and also people also remember have positive memories about universal health care, which no longer exists in many of these countries. Um, obviously, in Soviet Union, much of it was basic, but people people's memories also um, have become um, people have put on their their rose colored specs a lot of the time when they remember this nowadays. Um, they forget about the rampant food shortages and so on um, sometimes. Um, so when you talked about when you asked about ambivalence about about um, members of the Soviet Union, yes, there's a lot of ambivalence, and I think uh, it's also worth remembering that you know um, uh, half the population in Central Asia, or more than half the population, is under thirty. That means they were born after the Soviet Union. Um, had collapsed and they have no memories of it whatsoever. And um, some of them, for some of them, it seems like a complete irrelevance now. Um, but of course, they they probably don't realize the 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 the, 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 the enormous impact this period has had on, on their countries. Um, so I think, um, and I think finally, when it comes to talking about memories and the Soviet Union, it's worth worth saying that um, none of these countries have have had a reckoning with their history. Um, that includes Russia as well, of course, um, but we're talking about Central Asian countries here. None of them have had a reckoning with that colonial history, with that Soviet history. None of them have tried to come to terms with that history in any meaningful way. When history is discussed, um, it's discussed in very bland and um, um, mostly inoffensive terms, and there are reasons for that. For example, if Kazakhstan were to discuss some of the things that have um, left it with a traumatic legacy, such as the famine, the gulag, the um, devastation of the Aral Sea, and this could be seen as uh, blaming Russia. Um, now, um, Russia as the sort of uh, the, the key player in the, in the, in the Soviet Union, the, the leader of it really. Um, and so, you know, these countries, and often they shy away from discussing that history because they don't um, want to um, offend Russia because they fear the consequences. Um, and also there are other reasons um, they shy away from discussing that history. Again, we can take the case of Kazakhstan. Nursultan Nazarbayev remains uh, the key political player in Kazakhstan um, 30 years after independence. And he, he rose through the Soviet system and he served the Soviet system and he was a key 
functionary in the Soviet system, who rose to become the leader of independent Kazakhstan. Um, in the, in, but just because it got its independence, but he was the leader of the Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan before. So it's very, very difficult for these countries to have any kind of reckoning for, um, with their history. Um, and I, I think um, there are people in Kazakhstan who believe that that should be done, that it should be brought out into the open, that some of the crimes of the past should also be revealed. Um, it's um, a lot of people like to think that it was the Russians that served the Soviet system that um, that uh, ran the system that uh, enforced collectivization, caused the famine, that served the gulags. But it's obvious that um, Kazakhs also served in the system, um, and uh, you know it, that without any kind of reckoning, people. Some people have stated. I spoke to a to a, a, a journalist. A, um, who studied who studied the gulag um, once, and um, you know she said that without this reckoning of the past, Kazakhstan will never be able to move into um, some kind of um, you know into a future in a positive way. It will never be able to understand its own past without without if it. Sorry, let me try that again. Without a, a reckoning of the past, Kazakhstan, and this applies to other Central Asian countries too, um, will will won't be able to move in a in a in a in a decent and uh, effective manner into the future. So brushing the past under the carpet is is not serving these countries well. I think. I do love the uh, term uh, contested imaginary. It is very interesting. With talking going back to earlier when we were talking about tropes. You know, when you try to look into a Turkmenistan or even, you know, a Kazakhstan where the leader renames or they vote to rename the capital after um, the, the former leader, it's, it's easy to sort of scoff as an outsider at um, what seems to be a very crude manufactured nationalism. Could you talk a little bit about um, the nationalisms or the national identity that the state has tried to forge and has it been quite clunky post-Soviet uh, Union? And then in terms of the contested part of the national imagination, for Islam in particular, um, are there other um, visions of what these states should be that the government is unable or unwilling to allow to have more air uh, or more space in public dialogue? In terms of national identity, all of the Central Asian states have kind of, um, their independence was thrust upon them in 1991 with the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union. And they have had to face the challenge of forging themselves a national identity, um, kind of quite suddenly and quickly. And, um, and also while trying to um, deal with um, their past without fully confronting it, as we've already discussed, um, which, which which makes um, life a little bit difficult. And also, they've been trying to forge their national identity. Most of the states, you know, with large minorities, um, from um, mostly from other parts of the of the Soviet Union. Um, so that so that um, say trying to forge a Kazakh identity in Kazakhstan, purely Kazakh is problematic because it doesn't include minorities. So the government has tried to forge a different kind of identity, let's say, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and the same goes for the other countries in, in Central Asia. 
um, the difficulties of trying to forge a national identity when you're Kazakh, Uzbek or Tajik, but you have a, you've got large minorities. Kazakhstan, obviously the largest number of minorities, but all of the countries have tried to include their minorities in their national identity and identity to a certain degree, but it's quite problematic um, because the, the ideas kind of clash a little bit. So we, we see sort of, um, nation building formed around civic identities, civic national identities. We see some civic nationalism, as in trying to say we're all Kazakhstani or Uzbekistani. Um, Kazakhstan, for one, has tried to solve this problem by making its multi-ethnic nature, just uh, trying to pick, pitch itself as kind of cosmopolitan and we're open to all. Um, and certainly minorities have welcomed that in Kazakhstan uh, because in, it's not true in all the countries of um, the former Soviet Union. Some of them have not been so welcoming to the minorities they inherited. Um, so that's something um, that Kazakhstan has tried to do, which is, is laudable, really. Um, when it comes to, to forging those national identities, what strikes me is that the countries have tended to look very far back in history to, um, to, um, to kind of legitimize their existence. Um, I suppose because they struggle with the colonial, the Russian colonial past, they've looked uh, much further back. Um, and so, for example, the Kazakhstan has forged its national identity around um, the formation of the Kazakh Hanate in 1465. Um, so more than 500 years ago, and it's very much, especially in recent years, focused on that as something that everyone should be proud of, which again contains its own uh, contradictions, because uh, there's no reason why Russians who live in Kazakhstan should be particularly proud of Kazakhs forming their Hanade in 1465. Um, Uzbeks, um, they've, um, they've um, tried to use um, figures like Alisha Navoyi, um, a poet uh, who was born in Herat in modern-day Uzbekistan in 14, 1400s as part of their nation building, as well as um, Tamerlane as well, um, and, um, and figures like uh, Babur, who went on to found the Mo Mughal Empire. Um, so all, all of these um, people have these connections to ancient Uzbekistan. But again, we see this looking very far back in history rather than um, anything more modern um, a lot of the time uh, because of the problematic more recent history of the colonial period. Um, but as I said, they've combined this kind of um, ethnic nationalism based on history with this sort of civic nationalism, the idea that we're all forging Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan um, together. Um, Islam is another interesting um, factor in, in all of this. Um, so the majorities in all of these countries in Central Asia do, they sort of would tend to self-identify as Muslim, although they practice to varying degrees. Um, the, the governments have really struggled to, to incorporate Islam um, in some ways into, 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 the, into, the, into the sort of self-identification or the, 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 at least the way the government tries to control or influence that. Um, obviously, partly there are fears of extremism, um, there were also um, all the states are secular, um, but um, they all, um, you know, I mean, Uzbekistan has been a particular case um, in, under Islam Karimov before he died in 2016. Islam was most severely repressed um, and there were thousands and thousands of people in prison on, um, on grounds of just practicing religion in a way the state didn't agree with that was not in many or perhaps in most cases was not in any way extremist, just the state did not approve of it. 
Now, um, this goes on in all these countries. Still, people are jailed for practicing religion in a way the state doesn't approve of. And it, it, this has become particularly prevalent in, in I'm sorry, in, um, this has become particularly prevalent nowadays in Tajikistan, which banned um, the, the, the only Islamic party in Central Asia, a moderate Islamic party, um, because it banned it to get rid of political opposition. Now, uh, failing to cater, I think, for, for Islam is obviously a mistake. I mean, many people in Central Asia are more secular-minded, but some are, are much more religious, and the government struggles to incorporate um, them into into these all these processes. So, I mean, to summarize, it's, it's very complex. Um, I think it's very complex. There's not much um, data on how people identify because um, there's not much data on a lot of things in these countries because the governments don't want to find out. They're afraid of finding out probably. Um, but so we do see some complex processes when it comes to nation building and identity, identity politics in Central Asia. Reading about Central Asia, it's really important for me, at least in this moment of global upheaval, to understand just how powerful violence is. Um, in Central Asia, you've historically seen governments that have to varying degrees used violence, uh, either through policing, incarceration, or literal torture in order to um, reproduce uh, autocratic rule. Um, I don't want to leave that to the imagination because it's easy for the imagination to run wild. To, to ground that, could you discuss a little bit about when we look at these more autocratic nations? So, for example, the past rule of Uzbekistan leader Islam Karimov, uh, the current regime in Turkmenistan, um, and the, the squelching of, of protests in places like Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, um, as well as the populism of their current leader that I know has a lot of people somewhat nervous. How has violence historically been a tool of governance in modern Central Asia? And then as a, as a coda to that, how have countries that are democratic, and there's that horrific photo of John Kerry as an ambassador shaking hands with Islam uh, Karimov, how have democratic countries aided, abetted, or enabled this violence through their implicit or explicit support of these regimes? That's a good question. I mean, violence has underpinned um, the, um, the, um, the way that these um, countries have, these leaders have held on to power, some of them for many years. Um, now, um, these are, um, I think, I think, the, the regime of Islam Karimov, which um, ruled Uzbekistan from independence till 2016, is, is an extreme case, um, as is Turkmenistan, actually, uh, to date, but we have less information on that. Um, you know, I mean, um, the Islam Karimov regime did um, jail tens of thousands of people on, on religious or political grounds. And, um, you know, uh, they were severely mistreated in, in prison. Um, all kinds of torture, uh, methods of torture were practiced against them from, um, from beatings and so on um, to um, even to the use of boiling water, which caused notoriously caused the death of a couple of, of prisoners um, many years ago. Um, 
so um, there have there have been you know obviously information has filtered out. Um, there, there is a very good book on, on this particular issue in Uzbekistan, the treatment of political prisoners, called "The Vanishing Generation" by Barila Bukhobayeva. Um, and so that 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 use of violence um, was uh, under Karimov in Uzbekistan was certainly key to to keeping. Uh, but all the all the regimes have practiced it um, to some degree um, to to keep control. And I I I I I also think it's worth pointing out that when people hear the word torture, they often think of these very extreme um, things like pulling out fingernails and pouring boiling water on people or something. But there, you know, the, the use of torture in all of these um, countries in Central Asia. The abuse of prisoners is is routine and is often not considered to be torture by those who are perpetrating it, and even possibly those who are receiving it. Um, you know, so, uh, so violence, random beatings, or just beatings, um, you know, in in prisons or in detention centres, and um, the use of um, violence, uh, psychological or physical, to extract um, confessions. Um, we can we can talk. Um, sometimes we get some quite detailed and graphic um, information about this um, that comes out for for whatever reason. For example, it, um, ten years ago in Kazakhstan, there was um, a, an oil strike went badly wrong, and um, the security forces ended up shooting dead some of the the, the protesting strikers. Um, and in the subsequent trial of some of those strikers, uh, rather than of the security services who shot them dead, um, they revealed all kinds of graphic details of torture from, you know, the use of plastic bags are put around their heads to, 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 to stop them breathing, um, things similar to waterboarding, threats of rape or um, including to, to men um, with objects or, or other or, or rape itself. Um, so, we, you know, we really do see and this gives you sometimes a glimpse into just how prevalent this kind of abuse is. Um, and, and that goes for all these um, prison systems in all these countries. Um, so I would say that violence has been a tool, yes, um, to keep um, to keep um, control of the populations. Um, and as I say, torture is a is a ma is a massive problem, um, but it, it should also be understood as that very day to day um, abuse of, of, of people, not just to just um, uh, in prison systems and detention systems all around the region. In, in, and the problem there is the, the unreconstructed nature of this post-Soviet justice system, which is really based on the, on the, on the premise of, of guilty until proven innocent. You are almost never proven innocent if you get caught up in the system. Um, and as for how um, democratic uh, countries have abetted this, um, yes, they have um, often given legitimization to to many of these leaders. Um, and, and the reason is, I think, because they often value stability above um, human rights and democracy. Um, and, and this has been true, um, you know, often, um, for example, you know, uh, Nazarbayev has often been received at high levels um, by American presidents, British prime minister, um, uh, and so on. And so have some of the other leaders. Now, um, that they're, they're, Islam Karimov, um, certainly in his later years, became more of a pariah, but that was only because really it seemed to me that the Western leaders feared really bad, bad publicity from meeting Karimov, particularly after the um, massacre of protesters in Andijan in 2005, which I should have mentioned as the the key um, 
the key perhaps to, to the use of violence to suppress um, dissent or to control populations in Uzbekistan was that notorious massacre of peaceful protesters um, in 2005 in Uzbekistan. Um, so yeah, I think um, um, Western, Western countries um, have sometimes spoken out after that massacre, for example, they couldn't remain silent anymore and sanctions were used on um, against Uzbekistan and um, the American government spoke out and, uh, and so on. Um, uh, but I think, you know, really Western, uh, Western countries, they often value um, partners they see as stable and as furthering their own interests and, 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 and really human rights um, and political freedoms take a back seat to that. Uh, the Uyghur region, uh, often reported uh, in reporting, often referred to as Xinjiang, China, has been a center of violence, not just for uh, Uyghurs, but also for ethnic Kazakhs and other Turkic minorities uh, of Central Asia. Um, it has disproportionately affected Uyghurs, but um, uh, many ethnic Kazakhs have been caught up in the uh, broad um campaign of state terror state terror on the part of uh, uh the people's republic of china's uh, government how have um china's actions um for uyghurs aside though i do know uyghurs make up uh somewhat substantial minorities so if you wanted to talk about that their activism within central asia that that might be uh of use but uh, the predominant focus of this question how has uh, China's actions in the Uyghur region impacted uh, ethnic Kazakhs and other citizens of Central Asia or ethnic uh, members of uh, these countries? And then why have these Muslim-majority governments uh, of Central Asia, in particular Kazakhstan, which we've seen really go all over the place in terms of the space it's allowed for civil society groups to bring attention to this campaign of, um, of mass state violence, uh, what what um, I think genocide is is a term that's currently being debated, but more and more often being used. How has the um, the genocide that is going on in the Uyghur region um, impacted Central Asia? And then why are the governments continuing to stand by China and this uh, campaign of state violence? Yes, the the campaign of state violence against um, minorities, Muslim minorities, Turkic peoples mostly, in Xinjiang um, has has really impacted particularly Kazakhstan. Um, so um, obviously, nu uh, numerically, Uyghurs um, are far more numerous than, than Kazakhs in Xinjiang, so they've been far more affected numerically. Um, but Kazakhstan, Kazakhs have been just as affected by. Um, the, the levels of incarceration among their communities and the, the levels of state violence used against them. Um, so how has this affected um, Kazakhstan? Well, um, you know, gradually, um, since, since Kazakhstan, um, since independence, Kazakhstan has had a program um, that has um, allowed um, ethnic Kazakhs who, whose families were sort of blown abroad by the winds of history, uh, fleeing war, famine, repression, whatever, um, to return 
to were well, not returned, but to come and live in Kazakhstan. Many of them had never been to Kazakhstan before because they were born abroad. So since independence, Kazakhstan has welcomed them back with various kinds of perks. So uh, many people have moved um, from many Kazakhs have moved over to Kazakhstan from the Xinjiang region of China under that program. Uh, now I write about this um, in my in my book Dark Shadows at, at some length about what they brought to the country and so on. Um, but because of this, that means there's a, an enormous, uh, there's a lot of links between Kazakhs in, in Xinjiang and Kazakhs in Kazakhstan. Um, there's family links, there's historic links, and there's links between, you know, me members of the family who, who stayed behind and members had moved here. And so when this campaign of repression started, um, you know, information began to filter quite quickly into Kazakhstan. And um, certain um, and and um, you know some of the people also um, fleeing the the repression. Uh, many of them came to Kazakhstan. Some some of them legally and some of them illegally, um, illegally crossing the border to get away from Xinjiang. Um, now the the the. the this has created, this made Kazakhstan at one time a sort of center of global advocacy for this, um, for this issue, um, much to the um, discomfort of the government, we could say, which is a major ally of China and didn't want to upset China um, and has been quite reticent when it comes to, to criticize it, well, very reticent when it comes to speaking out over the abuses against Kazakhs in China. Um, so this, Kazakhstan became a center of ad advocacy because um, we, because uh, you know, um, uh, uh, one one um, Kazakh who's originally from China um, set up a group to try and lobby for um, these interests. Now, Serik Jambilash is his name. Um, now, the, this this advocacy continued for for quite a while, um, with the government kind of not knowing how to react or, or or variously putting pressure on. But you know, international journalists began to come to Kazakhstan and to to to, to, to interview the detainees, the former detainees or their relatives who are missing in camps in Kazakhstan. And so for a while, much of the reporting, almost all of the reporting, in fact, for a while was coming out of Kazakhstan that you saw in the Western media when it began to make a real splash around 2017, 18 and, and, and also 19. Um, um, so Kazakhstan has um, effectively managed to shut down much of that advocacy. Um, Kazakhstan has treated the, the, the people who come with varying degrees of, um, um, sometimes with leniency, sometimes not so much. It's tried some of the people who crossed the border illegally. Um, it's been very reluctant to grant asylum, although a few people have, have, re have uh, managed to get asylum. A few of those um, asylum seekers have been given asylum. Uh, one of the most prominent um, uh, asylum seekers who was tried in Kazakhstan um, early on in 2017 for legally crossing the border was never given asylum in Kazakhstan and ended up having to get asylum in Sweden. Um, so we really see this effect of, has been great on Kazakhstan. Um, it's it, the wider population knows something about about this, but it's it has been quite confined. Um, it, it's caused a lot of anger among among some Kazakhs, but 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 you know that obviously given that the state media doesn't really report on it and that it, the advocacy has been in a sort of more or less closed circle, it hasn't caused a wider furore. But still, the government has to take account of public opinion on this when China is repressing Kazakhs. Um, but um, really, right now, at, the, at this point, much of the advocacy has been shut down, and um, other countries in, um, have, have have not really um, have not really. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hardly featured on their radar because their governments um, don't want it to. Um, so that's what we can say, I think, about the, the situation as it is now. Um, 
you know, people people still able to move from Kazakhstan to China if they're ethnic. From I'm sorry, people are still able to move from China to Kazakhstan if they're ethnic Kazakhs, but many barriers have been put up to that. It's obviously a developing situation, so it will be um, continuously reported upon, and um, it's. Uh, I think there's a lot more fluidity now on what's happening in the Lico region than before. With uh, I, I do actually think this is an area where mass journalism has, has really had an impact in terms of perhaps um, slowly starting to blunt um, the impact of state violence. So I, I hope that's the case, and this will be something that, that bears monitoring, and I'm sure you're, you'll be reporting on this as it develops. Um, to, to bring us up a little bit now, um, <laughs> out of these very important, but I know at times uh, uh, deflating questions. I'd like to talk about two topics that I don't see discussed uh, as often as I think they should be. Um, that would be youth and um, just the architecture of Central Asia. Um, in researching our chat, particularly from the Calvert Journal, which is wonderful, um, you see a lot of writing on just the uniqueness, the strangeness, the postmodernism of post-Soviet architecture. Um, two cities come up quite a bit, uh, Turkmenistan's uh, Ashgabat uh, and, Kazakhstan, or, and Kazakhstan's Nur Sultan. Uh, from my understanding, and, and this is where I'm a bit fuzzy, uh, Uzbekistan's Tashkent is being redeveloped uh, quite a bit as well. But could you just, without me editorializing anymore, describe what is it about these cities that perhaps does is so out of the ordinary and does actually have really unique effects uh, or really um, elicits very interesting commentary from both tourists and residents? And then as a coda to that, um, particularly for Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan uh, and these cities, do you think we can glean anything about the insight of the leaders of these countries through the unique, uh, and I'm putting air quotes around unique, the unique um, structure of how these cities have been built? Yes, I mean, some of the cities of Central Asia, particularly these newer ones, or the, certainly the newer parts of them, are very striking. Um, and it's a really um, interesting question, kind of their, their psychogeography, of what kind of impact they, their living environments have on the people who live in them, or, and why the leaders chose to, 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 to build them in that way. Um, I, I, it's true that um, the two cities that really spring to mind as the idiosyncratic um, sort of embodiments of this are um, Nur Sultan, uh, the capital of Kazakhstan, which was renamed after the former president um, two years ago, and um, Ashgabat in Turkmenistan, both of them, uh, both of them, um, you know, really very idiosyncratic. Um, um, now, um, I I'll talk a, a bit more about uh, Nur Sultan because it's a city I know much better and have visited many more times. I've only been to Ashgabat once. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, the thing about um, the thing about Nur Sultan was, is, is, is really um, the, the two different uh, visions or different opinions on Nur Sultan, very striking. Um, Nazarbayev um, saw this um, creating a new capital for Kazakhstan 
as a visionary move. Uh, that's why he did it. Um, it's also a nation building move for him. He wanted to create something that all the people could be proud of and would be proud of. Um, now, his critics see this as an expensive folly stuffed with um, you know, really expensive and idiosyncratic and not always beautiful architecture. I mean, for some people, this kind of dazzling um, gold and um, shiny marble and um, and sort of um, idiosyncratic things like having a pyramid designed by the British architect Norman Foster. Um, some people see that as visionary. Some people see it as a very extravagant folly and um, a monument to one man's ego, Nusultan Nazarbayev's. Um, what does it have on the people who live there? Well, you know, I know a lot of people who live there and I suppose, like, um, I, it's really hard, it's really hard to say um, um, how it affects the, the people who live there. I, I think some of them are proud of it, are proud to have um, a, 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 a new capital with um, such striking architecture and others, um, others are not, others find it disorienting, uh, disorientating and, and also um, you know, the fact that Nur Sultan, the, the newer part of the city, which is on the left bank of the river, the right bank of the river has an old city that has always that's been there for many years and a Russian colonial city uh, was always there. But the newer part of the city is quite is, is, is not really on a is not on a very human scale. You know, when people are walking, the, the buildings are monumental and shiny. Um, and um, in the early days, when I first visited, um, and, I, and I sort of described this a little bit in my book, Dark Shadows, um, it, there was very, very, it was very, um, um, yeah, disorientating and, and strange to be in a place there were there were almost no cafes, there were there were there were just these giant buildings on this boulevard, and or not even a boulevard. Um, so, but these days, I think people um, people who live there have obviously got used to it. Um, you know, they're used to see going to going to the uh, to the new part of the city, the official part, and seeing this kind of um, tower where you put your hand in the um, print of Nazarbayev's and sort of make a wish. And they're used to seeing this pyramid um, going coloured neon at night and various other type of buildings. Um, so, so yeah, that's um, that, that's what I think. In Ashgabat as well, a very it's not not on a human scale. People, you know, people are kind of lost in the, in some of these big marble areas. And in Ashgabat, there always seem to be fewer people walking around um, as well. Um, it, uh, it, so, so yeah, quite disorientating. And the psycho uh, geography must be having an impact on, on the people who live there. And you were also asked about um, youth. Um, well. Um, one one of the things we, we discussed earlier, the many, many people were born after the Soviet Union collapsed, over half the people in Central Asia. So for them, some of this, the things we're discussing, some of the, the places they've grown up in, cities like Nilsultan, this is just, just the normal to them. Um, but I'd like mm -hmm. to also talk a little bit about some of the more vibrant um, youth movements um, that we see. Uh, very briefly, um, we, we're seeing how youth are trying to lead the cause for, for change in um, Central Asia 30 years after independence. We see that people, for example, in Kazakhstan, we've seen um, young people spearheading calls for change after the resignation of Nursul Nazarbayev as president two years ago. We saw people who were born, you know, who were really the Nazarbayev generation, they were born under Nazarbayev, they their whole lives under him, but they'd like a say in the post-Nazarbayev future. Um, I think what we should single out here is that though people are, you know, some people, the people who want change, they, they struggle to push back against what is an authoritarian regime. 
But what's interesting to me is that young people have embraced some very creative methods for doing that. In Kazakhstan, I, I can talk about that particularly. Um, for example, when after Nazarbayev resigned, and um, he, he, he sort of bequeathed a policy of zero tolerance um, towards public protest. And because of that, people did protest and they did get arrested, but they also tried to embrace some kind of creative kind of protest by holding up. Um, so two youth activists became um, famous, at least in our part of the world, for holding up a banner at the Almaty Marathon two years ago, um, which said you can't run from the um, you know, it's sort of it's a sort of postmodern kind of protest where where people are trying to say, you know, we, we we're trying to show you that we're here and we're trying to hold up an inoffensive slogan. Of course, they still got arrested. Uh, we also saw um, some kind of copycat actions. We even saw a, um, a young man go out onto a, a square of his the, the main square of his uh, city, Oral and um, hold up a blank piece of paper to test out the authorities' reaction. And of course, he was also detained, albeit briefly, um, and not charged because the authorities couldn't think of anything to charge him with. But we're seeing this youth-led movements for change. There's a movement called Wayan Kazakhstan, Wake Up Kazakhstan, that was formed a couple of years ago in Kazakhstan that's led by this youth-driven. Uh, but we also see that the, these, um, uh, these tactics, of course, although they're attention-grabbing stunts, they're not actually very effective. There hasn't been a great deal of, of, of change in Kazakhstan, although the authorities have tried to sort of make some steps to show that they're meeting them halfway, but there hasn't really been any, any major changes. Um, we've also seen, um, I think we should look at as well, talk about some of the, the, the way that, that young people are using um, culture to express themselves, um, just as they do all over the world, of course. But there's, um, I, I think we could um, talk about um, um, for example, the singer Zere in Uzbekistan, who's, who's um, um, put out some very um, dramatic kind of songs, created some controversies, uh, maybe when she didn't mean to. Um, I can think of a, um, one particular song of hers, which was um, she sang um, a Kyrgyz language song, which she sang um, to express her frustration at how people are always telling young women what to do, what to wear, how to dress, how to speak. And ironically, um, she came under a lot of fire for the way she was dressed in the video, even though it wasn't particularly immodest. Um, but I, I think we can see that young people are really at the front of um, any movements that there are for change in Central Asia. We, we do see that now it's young people driving them, just as it should be and um, just as is, is logical really. But I think um, in this region, it is young people who are, you know, going to be a force for change. And um, I think that's a really optimistic, um, optimistic um, aspect. We, we can see that there, there are so many young, talented, driven, creative uh, young people in Central Asia. And, um, you know, they, they, they hopefully can, can, can do something useful, um, valuable for their countries. Well, Joanna, it was a pleasure talking to you. Um, I, I think this is one of those interviews where we may actually, <laughs> people may actually change their travel plans because um, certainly reporting such as yours uh, brings so much color and vibrancy to a region that otherwise is painted uh, in very broad strokes. Um, to conclude, uh, I have a question and then I'd like for you uh, just if there's anything you would like to center for your own work or where people can find you, um, you can do that at the start of the answer. But um, I've been really uh, befuddled as to this question of in an era where a lot of regimes are increasingly turning to violence uh, in order to manage discontent and dissent, 
on the power of things like art and culture. Um, I've drifted further away from the arts the more I've seen protests that start off quite optimistically um, be, be thwarted or suppressed by just very crude means of violence. Because at the initial phase or the mid-phase of a lot of these protests, uh, from Lebanon to Hong Kong um, to uh, Chile to uh, Black Lives Matter, there's a lot of very powerful art and creativity, but it seems uh, the canvas is still, you know, punctured by the policeman's truncheon. Um, and I feel you're uniquely positioned having, you're at the epicenter of very young countries with people crying out for, in very creative ways, that they want to have the space to have their own voice, regardless of what um, the old ways of doing things are. So um, where can people find your work? And then just to answer this question or to do some small part in helping me cut through this Gordian knot, and I don't expect you to have the perfect solution, but how do you see the ability to change culture in Central Asia that so many young people from underground raves to uh, Burning Man in the Errol Sea to comedy troops to uh, feminist uh, performance artists. How do you see culture as a as perhaps a way to overcome very repressive politics? And and can this offer any lessons for other global freedom struggles? Yeah, this is yes, an excellent question. Well, um, I'd just like to say before I answer the question, it's been an absolute pleasure to appear on podcast um, I, I, I think you're doing some great work um, I hope that um, listening to um, I hope that after listening to this podcast people will change their travel plans and will come to Central Asia it's a fantastic fantastic region to travel in uh, very welcoming people absolutely incredible things to see both ancient and modern um, cities also um, cities and also landscapes are just absolutely mind-blowing um, and people very welcoming. Um, and um, so, so I hope people, people will come. And I'd also like to say that most of these countries um, have been really loosening up on their visa regimes. Um, obviously the pandemic creates some issues, but most of these countries um, have, uh, have really loosened up their visa regimes in recent years. And many people can visit visa free or with, with very little hassle to get a visa. Um, so please come. Um, to find out more about Central Asia, I cannot recommend highly enough that you read Eurasianet. That's um, Eurasianet.org. Um, and that's a, a website devoted to uh, reporting on Central Asia and also the Caucasus, where you'll find really, really in-depth um, in depth stuff. And I, re I report for Eurasianet, but many other excellent reporters and excellent net network of, of reporters around the region. Um, I'd also recommend um, looking at Radio Free Europe's reporting and, of course, the Calvert Journal on Culture. Is, is, is fantastic cultural related issues. Um, so um, to the question, um, how, what's the ability of people um, to use, to young, these young people to use, um, to use their creative um, sort of uh, inspirations to drive change? Well, um, you, you did mention some of the things that I also forgot to mention. I think um, the, this Tahia festival at the bottom of the Aral Sea that's now held on the dried up or near the dried up bed of the Aral Sea um, was supposed to be an annual event. Obviously the pandemic has had a, had a, had a, had a detrimental effect on that for now. Um, but um, 
this is, is one of the examples of something creative driven by young people, um, an idea that was had in Uzbekistan to bring people um, to, to sort of rave. I mean, very staid when it comes to what a rave is considered in the West. Uh, but it really, a couple of years ago, I went to the first one and, and, it, and it really um, was a sort of game changer for the people living in a, in a blighted region. And they were excited to have new people coming in and so on. And, and this, this kind of thing opens up mentalities. It's not a challenge for the regime and it was never intended to be, but it opens up mentalities and brings um, contacts to people who are living in a quite a far flung region, brings foreigners and people from the capital Tashkent and, and so on to all have um, new interactions. And that's really can be a, a force for change. Um, and, you know, we see all kinds of interesting cultural things happening um, recently, um, a, couple, a, a couple of years ago, I also attended a sort of rave in, a, in an abandoned Soviet sanatorium in Kyrgyzstan on Lake Isikul, that's called Utyos. Um, um, I don't know if it's going to be happening again, but it, 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 it did used to happen regularly. And that's also a, a very interesting event driven by young people just to, just getting together to have fun, really. Um, uh, but they also, um, you know, we see some, as you say, feminist art collectors. We see different kind of artistic things happening. There are interesting art artists, um, you, you know, harnessing art um, to express political um, um to express uh, yeah political ideas but also just um generally to try and um tackle environmental issues we see saudi sudimenova um in um kazakhstan we see sumbike who's her daughter who uses art and music um as a way of expressing ideas and, and protest perhaps so we're really seeing a lot of movements there's a lot going on in central asia and that goes for for, for all the countries although some more than others of course there's the more closed off ones more difficult um, so, um, as I said at the beginning, I really would encourage people to um, visit Central Asia, um, come and see for yourself, and um, of course, um, read my book, Dark Shadows, for a real in-depth look at, at Kazakhstan before you come.